G'day everyone, welcome to another edition of Conversations with the Code 9 Foundation. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, who is this person? Well, you may have heard me or spotted me lurking in the Code 9 shadows over the last 12 months. I have been involved with the Foundation as an ambassador and I absolutely adore supporting first responders and first responder families as much as I can. So it is an absolute pleasure to be invited to come and have even more conversations with even more amazing humans, one of which is Nick Farr today and you will hear about him when I properly introduce him at the beginning of this show. But the purpose of this little introduction was one, to introduce who on earth I am and two, just to give you a sneaky little apology about the first 10 minutes of my audio, which is a little bit suboptimal because I had the wrong microphone plugged in. Anyway, I hope you adore the conversation as much as I did, and I look forward to bringing you many more. Nick Farr, welcome to the Code 9 Foundation podcast. How are you, sir? Very good, Tiff. How are you? I am excellent. Uh, I'm the brand new shiny new host of this show. I'm a bit excited because I get to speak to weapons like you, Nick. <laughs> a weapon. I've never been called a weapon before. Well, you look like a weapon. You look like a weapon to me. I've read up on your bio. You certainly sound like a weapon. And to be honest, I feel like I'm going to walk away from this chat a little bit more of a weapon myself. Okay. Well, I'm getting there. now I'm, I'm no under pressure. pressure. I'm no under pressure. pressure before we've even started. <laughs> I feel like that's, the, that's where you, that's the kind of vibe you operate in though isn't it yeah look i guess it's uh it's something i've i've had a lot of practice at um a lot of exposure to and yeah. i'm uh i'm slowly starting to get the hang of it well hopefully you'll be you'll be up to the amount of pressure i'm going to put on you today my friend okay good <laughs> i'm ready all right let me tell the world just a tiny bit about you not that i know much but i know that i know the basics i know that you've spent 20 years as a detective in was it all with victoria police yep yep you are co-founder of the resilience builders which was in from 2017 founder and former director of the everest academy from 2012 founder and current director of trek climb ski nepal 2006 and founder and current director of Ski Aspen 1995. I'm starting to get the idea that you like to do a thing or two. Uh, yeah, if it's outdoors and it's in the mountains, I certainly do. That's, um, so that's been the thing. Yeah. So good. All right, well, yeah. let's have a little bit of a rummage around in your life, shall we? Okay. <laughs> Where do you want to start? I want to start. Oh, let's start with the uh, with your career in the police force because I'm always intrigued. I'm always intrigued to hear... What drew you into that career? Where did it come from? You know, was you was it influenced by people in your life or yeah? You know, look, it's it's funny. Um, there's no romantic backstory really um, to me getting into the police force. I, I finished. I went to a good school, and my mum was pretty horrified when I announced that I was going to join the job. Um, and really, if I'm brutally honest. I joined the police force because some of my mates had already done it and they said it was a lot of fun. That is honest to God why, why I got in. Um, and I got in very young, you know, I was, I was um, 19 and a half when I graduated and I didn't know much. I had travelled overseas a little bit. Um, so I tasted that and I knew I loved it. Um, I love skiing. I knew that I really love skiing and I love travel. Um, but I had to find a way to 
earn an income. And I had some friends that were in the job and they said, this is pretty good fun. You get paid pretty well. Um, so I go, that, that was it. That, that was what caused me to have a, have a crack at that. And, uh, and lo and behold, in, um, in 1986, in I went. Look, it sounds like a pretty good idea to me at the time. What I always think, though, <laughs> maybe this just shows my age, but when somebody says, yeah, I started that at 19 and I visualise what I, a 19-year-old now mm. and then I think of police officers um, and it almost mortifies and I'm like, you're a child. Yeah, well, look, you really are in terms of what you know. Um, yeah. And look, you do, I, I mean, I think back then and you probably still do the old maturity tests and things you had to do mm. and how I passed those, who knows. Um, I did. I must have had the, the right it's answered the questions the right way back then. And, you, got but, you, the know, answer, you got the answers off the right mate that day. <laughs> yeah, I would have. But, you know, when I, when I think back to how young as a, as a person and my worldly knowledge and everything, it's pretty yeah. non-existent. Um, yeah. You know, that's why you're 18 weeks in the academy and then you get out, you're training in different locations. And, but, you know, look, I, I loved it. I loved it for most of my career, I would say I loved it. And I really... Yeah. I really had an aptitude early to wanting to catch crooks and become a detective, and that was the path I was on. I think for my whole career, my whole police career, I wrote two traffic infringement notices. They were probably both for me, Nick. Oh, I just didn't like doing it, Tiff, and if I'm brutally honest again, it was because I wasn't always that good at having the seatbelt on. I wasn't always <laughs> good at doing 60. Um, you know, I'm sure if there'd been a mobile phone around then, I probably would have been on it, and I really struggled with slugging someone 150 bucks for stuff that I was I was probably doing myself a fair bit of the time if the truth's on you know if I'm honest about it so I look with traffic and that sort of stuff didn't resonate with me becoming a detective did and so that's where I sort of focused my efforts and um unfortunately yeah got got in at a very young age and and enjoyed it you know had a had a lot of fun had a really good career Mm. what does a day in the life of a detective look like Oh, look back then, and, and we're going back a long way because I'm. I mean, let, I just want to put it out there. I've been out now for for uh, well, coming up to fourteen years. So I've, I've been out a long time. I've, I've been out coming up to as long as I was in. Wow. But you know, look, most of my career I was a divisional detective. So I, I worked at places like Fitzroy. That's where I started. Mm-hmm. Fairfield, Northcote. Um, you know, you you you're an all rounder, really. Um, if you're working at a division, you're an all rounder. So you'd end up um, working on whatever. It, whatever was going on in your area, your region. So, you know, lots of burglaries, lots of lots of violent crime, lots of assaults, robberies, armed robberies, a lot of sex offences. Um, you know, you'd attend homicides, but they'd get handed over to the homicide squad pretty quickly if it was obviously, yep. um, if it was obviously a homicide. So you really got exposed to everything. Yeah. Everything. yeah. Um, but it was good, you know. I worked in a lot of great locations with a lot of great people and, as I said, for, for most of my career, I really enjoyed it and, and you know, haven't, haven't got a bad thing to say about it. Mm. It was busy and it was active and it was what I liked. Yeah, I love that. I love that. What mm. was it like? What were those moments like, I guess, like the first time, first time you go and you call to a homicide or the first time, were there any particularly, I guess, triggering events in terms of, the you know, like to go and see sex offenses or deal with sex offences or break and entry was there any particular uh thing that you found more personally kind of triggering or challenging to deal with 
No, not really, to be honest. Look, I, I saw it all. Um, you know, probably when I really think back that, that there, were, there, was, there was a week in my police career, it was before I even joined um, the CI. That was when I was uh, an advanced phase trainee at Heidelberg Police Station. And in a one-week period, I, I had to actually attend two people that got hit by trains. Um, and one was a deliberate suicide in front of a train, and that was really messy. And I, and I still recall that day very, very clearly. It was a really yeah. hot day, and um, you know, and the, and the cleanup wasn't pleasant. Um, and then about a week later, I was on the van again, which is the you know, if you're on the divisional van, you're going to these jobs first. And then there was another one in the cloud um, railway station. I thought, wow, two, two in a week. That was really, you know, that was not a great week, but. And I was very young in my career, but no, look, I probably, I just had a, I, I dealt with that stuff well. I know not everybody does. I, I don't think I dealt with it well because of anything particular that I'd learnt or I'd, or I'd done. It was just, um, you know, just fortunate that I had the capacity to, to, you know, absorb with that and then just absorb that sort of thing and then just get on with it really. Mm. Did you have a... Did you have an awareness around that and around processing or was it just natural? Like, did you deliberately go in and go, all right, I've got to take some time? Were you good with self-care or no, you? No, You're so grounded. Not at all. How are you so no, grounded, I know, Nick? Well, I didn't know anything about that. There was no yeah. such thing back then, Tiff. Yeah. Self-care and, you know, meditation and mindfulness and being resilient. And No, there was none of that. I was just young and, you know, I mean, what typically happened for a lot of that period for me was, and there wasn't this, you know, I've, I've sort of said in a lot of the work that I've done since, we talk about vulnerability and the power of that. And there was no such thing as, as being able to be vulnerable um, in, the, in, the, in the job back when I was in it. Yeah. You know, and depending who you talk to, that may or may not have changed, but no, look, we'd, you'd finished work and you'd go to the pub. That was your debrief. It was kind of what you did. You worked really long hours. You hung out with, you know, with some with some good mates. You worked hard together. You debriefed in the pub. You'd front up the next day, and and that was that was a lot of, of how I guess you coped with some of the longer days and the tougher stuff you'd see and the, the things you deal with. That's you know, it's certainly how it was for me. Yeah, yeah. What did you do outside of work at that time? Did you have a very you know, definite? Yeah, that's a good question because I really I ranked that as being the thing that was able to just keep me very very measured. Look, I, I liked my job, but I wasn't, I wasn't a 24 hour policeman by any stretch. Um, and people in the job that are listening to this will probably say, no shit, Sherlock, because, because look, I had other things. I was a really, I was really into skiing and I loved skiing and I actually just wanted to be a skier. I've just, you know, and even after I became a detective in the early nineties, I took a year off to try and become a full-time skier. Mm. So I was, I was really lucky because in the, in the police environment, we get a lot of holidays, you're probably aware of, um, as a detective, you're able to, you'd, be, you'd get busy and you could save days. So it wasn't, wasn't out of the ordinary for me to have nine, 10, 11, 12 full week blocks that I could take. Um, so I was doing that skiing. I was going overseas. I was doing ski instructor courses uh, I was following the snow. I ended up working at Mount Hotham uh, for seven seasons while I was still in the job because I was using my holiday time to do that. So I actually did have a very definite life outside of um, outside of policing, which you know I really looked forward to and I loved. So I had my job over here, I had my passion over here, and I and I really blended the two. You know, mm. 
Do you know what I love about this conversation? And I have a lot of conversations with former police officers and former first responders, and a lot of them have had, you know, some some big things emotionally coming out of going into this and some big struggles and some, you know, they've hit hit some walls that, that just was totally unexpected. Ooh. And you have this, such this grounded demeanour, but what I, what I see, and, and I've seen it in other people I speak to, is you without knowing you have this framework in that allows you to process. So this life of being able to switch off from that and go and get physical and have passion elsewhere. And, and I think that, you know, that's the difference. There's such stigma around how people cope, but we don't always have our lives under the microscope as to how does the balance sit for an individual? Mm. How do we process things? How do we go in, you know, how do we, Am I getting enough? Like, geez, I'm a workaholic, Nick. Like, I'm shocking at trying to keep that balance myself. And I'm always, for me, it's a constant something I need to focus on. And, yeah, I, yeah it's, it's really interesting. Well, you know, look, it was quite by accident for me, um, you know, that I did have this passion that I, that I love, mountains. I mean, we'd always been in the mountains. When I was young and, um, you know, that's what we did. We went on holidays to the snow, hiking. Um, so it was... You know, and it resonated with me. I loved it. Um, yeah. And skiing was my thing. And so it just really happened that there was definitely that blend for a lot of years. And then yeah. later on came came the pole and hiking and mountaineering and, and that just added another dimension to that. And that actually really put me on the path to leaving the police force, really. that's It was the culmination of all of that that just got so um, powerful that I just had to do something else. Yeah. What do you t- talk to me about resilience and how you how you see and feel resilience and how obviously it's a big part of your life now? Yeah, look, it's a big subject, isn't it? And yeah. and uh, you know, there's there's so much being talked about resilience nowadays and the importance of it. And I, I don't certainly at resilience builders we don't ascertain that resilience looks like any one particular thing. It's a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Yeah. Um, if you're if you're going to ask me what my definition of resilience is, I, th- I think it looks like a lot of different things. I think you see composure under pressure. I really I really love the ability or when I see people being composed under pressure. You know, having confidence, um, being optimistic, being able to stay the course when things aren't going to plan, when, when shit is hitting the fan and you can do all those things, I think people are displaying a level of resilience, um, mm. you know, and, and being able, and, and then there's so many tools that you can use to help build and hone your resilience and build your capacity. But, you know, understanding, understanding and processing failure in a certain way is mm. very, very important. Mm. Um, you know, and at Resilience Builders, we talk about a lot of things. We talk about our tools for tough times. So we've got a suite of products and strategies that people can implement um, under our four banners, physical, emotional, social, and spiritual, to be able to help develop their resilience. We've also got a, a really strong outdoor doing component because I think when it comes to resilience and what I've learned, um, and probably if there's one thing that irks me, it's, it's teaching people and kids resilience under a banner that doesn't involve them doing and getting their hands dirty and failing and it's equally as applicable for adults as it is for young people but if you and this is why we love wilderness environments why we love mountain environments because these are I mean, resilience is a dynamic 
trait, right? Yeah. It's dynamic. You can't teach it in a static environment. Yep. You can't you can't learn resilience, Tiff, even listening to this podcast. You can't get it from YouTube videos or reading books. You've got to go mm-hmm. out and do stuff. You've got to fail. You've got to hurt. You've got to suffer. You've got to learn how to respond. You've got to keep fronting up. Um, you know, it takes a lot of effort, grind, discipline over over a long period of time, and then you can you can build this capacity in yourself to be able to to be able to cope with with heartbreak and upset and setbacks and, and when things don't go to plan. So, yeah. you know, and that and that's why I think people that you know, like I've I've climbed with a lot of different people, and I've and, and really I've learnt resilience from the Sherpa culture, from the Sherpa people of Nepal. Yeah, right. I don't think I learnt a lot about it from Victoria Police, to be brutally honest, because leadership and how resilience looks in one setting is totally different. 100%. And that was kind of what really resonated with me going back and forth to Nepal and getting immersed in that world and seeing how these guys operated and becoming friends and building really strong social connections. And, you know, that became my authentic, genuine way to want to live my life and mm. to be and to do and the stuff and and it had impact and it um and it was great fun and and I, and I think I learned had a I learned resilience through getting exposed and working with those people day in day out over many many years and seeing how they how they responded to hardship and how they how they dealt with stuff and you know and on the back of that were their relationships and their their selfless nature and Yes. Amazing humility that they have, and it all blends together to just build amazingly resilient, tough, fantastic people. Oh, I love that. You know, one of my favourite things, and this came from me from the boxing ring, is realising how you do one thing is how you do everything. And for me, the, the absolute almost necessity to have something, a hobby outside of what you do that becomes your metaphoric playground for whatever we want to develop. So for me, it was the boxing ring. I got this obsession with with boxing from a corporate yep. event and, and I kept going in and it, and it caught my attention because I was like, why the hell? Like, I'm, I don't feel good at it. I'm going in to get punched in the face. I'm nervous. I have yeah. inner critic. I'm, I lack self Like, all of the, the, the irky feelings exist in this activity that I'm choosing to go back and do and I couldn't understand it. But in... Whatever was driving that I couldn't understand was taking me back to do it. I remember having a three-year break from competing and going indoor rock climbing with a bunch of my PT clients. This is what got me about resilience and and the need to always uh, expose yourself to discomfort is I stood at the bottom as we of this two meter wall practice wall where we get told told how to do the whatever we're doing the little safety instructions and i looked up and as i looked up something shot through my body and i went what's that what what is that fear what the hell i've been punched in the face in front of thousands of people like i've done the pinnacle of fear I shouldn't feel this. And I couldn't believe that all of a sudden it was like, oh, no, for the last few years I haven't been fighting. I haven't been putting myself right on the edge. And I hadn't experienced that. And then all of a sudden look it up at a, looking up at a wall and not even a dangerous, scary wall, just an uncertainty of Ooh. I don't know how it feels to hold those nodules and not be sure of the feeling up there. And I, 
Yeah, but you know, you you were good at boxing. You, you taught, you learnt boxing, and you became proficient at boxing. Yeah. So, so I would say for you to go out and test yourself now in an out of comfort zone type of experience, boxing is not it for you. No, because you've done that, and yeah. you know the pain, and you know the routine, and you know what's going to happen. You know the good days, you know the bad days. Yes. So when you're fronted up to that wall, you're moving towards a new fear. Yep. You're finding the car. And, and at the start of your boxing, I can hear what I'm hearing from you is that you were, you know, you weren't good at it. You said you had that inner critic, but but something in you moved you towards it. Yeah. And that's the thing that people don't have. And a lot of people need coaching with that ability to move towards that uncertainty, that risk, that discomfort. Yeah. And we find that when we start doing that, we get growth. You know, the more you do that, the more you get growth. And so, you know, the fact that you moved, you got to that wall and you got there and you had a crack at it, you're moving towards, you yep. know, you, you've got something in you that says, right, I'm going to have a crack at this. I might I might not get the result I want. You know, you, you've got some fear and trepidation, so you're, you're switched on, your senses are happening, everything's like right because there's, yes. there's something at stake here. Now, you're probably not going to injure yourself, but you might look stupid in front of friends and people <laughs> that know you're super fit. And, yep. But that's that's all part of it, isn't it? You're you're being you're making yourself vulnerable in a yep. new situation, and you're going to have a crack. And that is how we build capacity. Absolutely. So tell me this. I'm thinking yeah. as I listen. I'm thinking. I'm imagining people who. Okay, so I'll give you another example, and then yep. I want you to tell me your answer to this. So recent, okay. I I did. I stepped into a new metaphoric boxing ring last week something that terrified me more than anything and it sounds ludicrous because people that that know me would go as if you would be scared of that but I signed up to do an improv class and I had to go to the city and do improv right just improv workshop improvised comedy you know weird Mm. stuff anyway for some reason it terrified me and to the point where I almost didn't want to go and I thought to myself I've asked, I'd done a little online workshop through COVID and I loved it. And I saw this, this, the value, just like in the boxing ring, I saw all of the super valuable things that being exposed to this experience was going to pull out for me and how it was going to develop me as a human. So I saw the value, but on the day of this workshop and things got busy and I was like, Oh, I'm not going to make it. I'm just, I just shouldn't, I just, I don't even want to go. I don't want to go. And I thought if it wasn't for boxing, I think that Tiffany Cook would not have gone because I would have gone because I would have avoided the discomfort. But what I had to do is take my mind to remember when I was fighting and every single day I drove to training no matter how I felt because that was the program and that was what I did because there was something more important and I did it and it and any feeling of discomfort was secondary. How do we take people that want to be more resilient that don't have that? How do we say you need to get it like no one wants to get uncomfortable. I don't want to get uncomfortable. Athletes yeah. find it when they when they stumble across it through sport, I think is a yeah. really easy one. But how do other people find it when they're just like, I need to work on resilience? Yeah, look, that is a great question. And I don't know how much research you did, but that is right in my wheelhouse, a question like that. Because, yes. I, because I love that. Because what you've got with boxing is you've got this reference point. Yeah. And you're looking at all the stuff you've done, all the stuff you've enjoyed, all the heartache, all the suffering, all the hard stuff you overcame to get where you got to. So you know, you've got this thing, you know, hey, you're saying, hey, Tiff, I've done this before. I've I've got through stuff like this. Hmm. Surely I can get through this. And this is what we 
we love to work with people. Now, look, originally we were a, a, an experiential program and mm. everything we did, and this is what we love doing, is working outdoors um, experientially with people because yep. that's where you get maximum shift and traction. Yes. And part of that program is we actively build reference points for people. So we have this thing um, that is that is our philosophy for building reference points. And why do we want reference points? We want them for stuff like you've just explained. So as when you when you get confront when you find yourself confronted by an experience or an upcoming challenge or something you're not sure about, you can say, hey, you know, I did this, I got through this, I can get through this. I've done this before, surely I can do this. Because when you do stuff that's amazing and fantastic, you get a lot of confidence. Mm. Uh, you know, and you need to build confidence, especially in young people. Young people need to taste their potential. And, and too often they're sitting on screens and, and um, you know, watching TV and they're on the iPad and they're not yeah. out there doing stuff as much as probably, I, I think, what, what we did when we, were, when we were younger. So, look, reference points, critically important. Anyone can build them, but there's a framework. So you need five things. You need, um, first thing is you need uncertainty in the act. Sorry, the first thing you need is investment. You need to get invested. It's got to matter. It's got to be... It's got to be something that matters to you. It's mm. got to be important enough to you that you're going to invest some time, some energy. You know that, and that might look like training. It might look like planning. It might look like going and shopping for stuff because you need it. Um, mm. It's preparation time. It's time that you invest before you engage in whatever it is you're going to do. So you've got to care enough to get invested. Um, you've got to have some uncertainty in the process. So, you know, it's why we love being in the mountains and wilderness environments because they're dynamic they're changing there's never a guarantee that every day is going to go the way you plan yes so if you're fronting up to something and the outcome is predetermined you're not building resilience you might be having a lot of fun you might be having a great activity um yeah. you know it might be something you enjoy doing but you've got to have the capacity to to fail to not get the result you want so you need uncertainty you need some risk you have some risk you have some skin in the game and we don't advocate physical risk, although the perception of physical risk is fantastic. Yes. People have got some perception of physical risk, they're switched on. Yeah. You know, they're really focusing their concentrate because no one wants to get hurt. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of other type of risk. Like you're, you're at the rock wall, there's social risk. You know, there's peer group pressure. There's emotional risk. How am I mm -hmm. going to look if I stuff this up? You know, and that's, that's just as, as powerful in terms of, of helping us to to modify our behaviour and, and, and build, um, you know, adapt and have a behavioural response to the situation. Mm. So what have we got? Investment, uncertainty, risk. You need to be in an unfamiliar environment. You know, so for you, you're going boxing every week, every day probably for a long period of your life. You know, and it's tough and it's hard work and you've got to be super fit and it hurts. But I would submit that after a long period of time of doing that, you're not going to an environment that's out of your comfort zone because yep. you know it. Yep. So you've got you to get break away from that daily treadmill yes. and all that, that routine that you know. So you've got to submit to those experiences. So you're going to a, to a new, um, to a rock climbing gym, that's something new. It's great. You're moving yeah. towards that. Hey, guess what I'm doing at the moment? I'm doing a scuba diving course with my daughter. Oh, that's nice. new for me. And yes. that's out of, I'm not used to being under the water. I'm used to being way above it, you know. Yeah. So this is. This is out of my comfort zone. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm getting some growth out of this because it's something new and I'm bloody hell, I'm switched on because, yeah, I don't want to look like a deal in front of my daughter, but I want to pass the course. So, 
So that's a perfect example, you know, for someone like me. So I'm out of my comfort zone. I'm not in my normal habitat. I'm not in the normal stuff that, that I'm used to. And I'm focusing. And that's the fifth component. You've got to be undistracted. You've got to be able to get immersed in this thing or whatever you're doing. You know, and you, normally that means getting away from Wi-Fi, getting away from, you know, the distractions at home, getting away from the phone screens. Um, and that's a hard one for kids. I mean, young people, it's a hard one for adults. It's yes. really hard for kids. Take them away for two days without a phone. Um, you know, wow, that's a challenge in itself. But if you can, if you can get those five things, investment, uncertainty, risk, a new f- unfamiliar environment and, and get focused, you can build reference points. And we work with young people, old people, athletes, corporates. These are the experiences you want to front up to as often as you can. Because the more of this you do, the more stuff you put in your back pocket that you say, hey, I did that, did that, it's pretty good at that, hey, I achieved that. So when you start to have this, these, these challenges, these things you come up with, you can just go, you're building a library, you're building a CV of tough shit that you've done that yes. helps you get through the next thing. So you know, I hope I've explained that all right. But I, I mean, I really think that that is, that is the nuts and bolts. If you can submit yourself to enough discomfort and challenge and new stuff, you start to get good at it. You build a capacity for it. You build a framework yourself. You learn about your body. You learn about, you know, how you cope with challenge and setbacks. And, yeah. Ooh. I love that. That's, oh, that's my jam. Do you teach a lot about, I'm a bit of a, I love a bit of science around stuff. I say I'm a science nerd, but I'm definitely not an academic, but I, I adore this whole figuring, understanding what's going on inside these complex, ridiculous things that live, that are squished into our skull. (laughs) And, you know, I think of, so when you were talking about kids and their computer games, I'm like, the, the dichotomy is you can get your dopamine hits. They don't know what's going on, but they open their phone and it's dopamine, 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 all those red little notifications, play a computer game, get all your dopamine. It's great. When it comes to the all of the experiences you just spoke about, that dopamine is 10 times higher, but it is on the other side of all of the shit neurobiology that we have to feel first. The fear, the discomfort, and all the icky stuff before we get the achievement to get the dopamine. Do you do, do you like teach any of that side of things? Do you teach kind of the science of resilience as well? Or is it you just kind of coach people yeah. towards the doing? Look, we do. And my business partner is the exercise physiologist and he's the smart one right? <laughs> <laughs> his name's uh david butterfin and look that's uh yeah he is really first and foremost um well he's a great guy yeah. um but he but he's a scientist and he loves the data yeah. and he he we work very hard and he's actually taught me a huge amount about that stuff about yeah. you know the way your, your mind works and and you know, dopamine and neurotransmitters and GABA receptors and all that stuff um, and, and the way that the different neurotransmitters act and the amygdala and the fight-freeze fight mode and yeah. how we've got to, you know, dial that down sometimes and switch the prefrontal cortex on. And look, he'll be proud of me talking like this for 20 years about it. Because yes. see, butters, I have learned this stuff. <laughs> Well but look, done. There, yeah, there, there is a whole science that sits behind it. And I've got to say, that's not my strong point. Yep. 
um, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about that, and I've actually through that I've been able to join a lot of the dots for myself. You know why certain things worked and why certain things um, didn't work. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's really very well fundamental to the stuff that we that we teach is that it's all evidence based. Um, yeah. You know, and there's a lot of academic rigor as well that sits behind that because. Butters is pretty clever uh, and he makes sure that, you know, our, our framework is like that. So, you know, we're, a, we're an interesting match. It's a, you know, it's a bit like Felix and Oscar in some ways, um, but, it, but it works pretty well. I love it. I love that stuff because, and I did a, I did a podcast with a guy by the name of Stephen Kotler, very well known. He's the founder of the Flow Research Institute. His yep. life is dedicated to researching the state of the flow state. Yep. And, I had him on my show a while back last year and afterwards I bought his book, um, The Art of Impossible. And what I loved about, so I love human behavior. And then when we start to realize that our behavior is driven by our neurochemistry. So when we take, we when we go and seek out Nick Farr and Nick Farr takes us through a program and exposes us to experiences, you're making all these changes in the neurochemistry, which changes the way that we take action on things. When I read his book and I looked at the process of my year and when I'd started the, pro, the my podcast and I'd got this all of this growth and he went through each stage of like behavior, neurochemical response behavior. It, it was the exact process I saw play out in something that I'd succeeded in, which was the same in the boxing ring. And you go, you start to go, you don't have to be, you don't have to be talented. You don't have to be this and that. You just have to layer the right behaviors and go through the right neurochemistry. And that will create the next, the, the right behaviors. And I'm a bit of a geek like that. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, yeah, spot on. Um, and, you know, how, how advanced do you want to drill into that sort of stuff? That's Even... as far as I can go with it. <laughs> That's as smart as I get, mate. I've regurgitated, regurgitated all of my intelligence. I'm done. No, that's good. <laughs> but you know what? You know, just the ability to form a habit. Yes. And, and there's yep. great resources out there. You know, we, we talk to people because we're trying to implement you know, emotional, physical, social, and spiritual strategies for building resilience. And, and a lot of these things are hard to do at the start, whether it's meditation or visualization mm. or reflection. Um, you know, if, if, if we're talking physical resilience, you've got to exercise, you've got to sleep, you've got to eat properly, all these different yep. things. And these, you know, I'm sure everyone can relate to the fact that when they first, you know, a lot of people start off at the gym and they're really motivated at the start, but that washes off in the shower. And then it's like, after a week, it's like, wow, this is hard. This yeah. is like, like, you know, the. You don't lose 10 days. kilos in three workouts and then it suddenly isn't so motivating anymore. That's right. So how do we, how do we form a habit? And, you yeah. know, I'm sure people that you're familiar with BJ Fogg from Stanford and Wendy mm. Wood and Basfa Plankin, and these are the world's best behavioral scientists. They've mm. got, They've got frameworks out there that show how the steps you can follow. And if you follow this, you will form a habit. You will produce um, positive, effective behaviour change. Yes. So, you know, there's resources. And, and that's not rocket science. That's stuff, you know, it starts with your why. Can you, can you do it? You know, understanding your outcomes, identifying your obstacles, um, you know, small steps at the start, you know, repetition. 
having some accountability, you know, yeah. being able to reward yourself. You talked about the dopamine fix. Well, we need an intrinsic reward when we're making progress. Yeah. But if you're trying to get fit and you're trying to be a boxer, it's probably not a slab of cans and a pizza on a Friday night. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, oh, guilty as well. But, <laughs> but you've got to find what's that thing, what's that way you can reward yourself and get that dopamine fix because you've put in a fantastic week. Yes. So there's a process that if you follow it, and that's not easy, is it? You got to. It involves courage. It involves discipline because discipline's what we need when the motivation washes off. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you got to keep fronting up. It involves effort, grind, resistance. Um, but you know, if you want it enough, yes. If it aligns with your why, if it matters to you, and that's why I think for a lot of this stuff, that's your starting point, and that's yeah. certainly what we tell people. You know, you've got to know. You've got to know what matters to you. What's important to you. What's your why? Because once you understand what's truly important, you'll find a way to work yeah. for it. You'll, you'll find a way to suffer and endure and, and make it happen. How difficult do you find it to get to really get to people's why? Or how, how difficult do they really find it? Oh, look, I think some people that have never considered it find it a bit challenging at the start. Yeah. But, you know, there's, there's, there's tools and there's resources that we that we share with people that yeah. that can open their eyes to that. Um, you know, it really starts with them try, having to identify what matters to them. Yeah. And, you know, and we actually give them a list. Um, we give them a list of like 76 things and a lot Very of Very specific number. Well, it's, I've, I've seen <laughs> this list You couldn't find another four and just round it up to 80 for me? We probably should, shouldn't we? It's called <laughs> what matters most. And, you know, there's things in there that are intrinsic, extrinsic, relational, things that relate to achievement or power or position. Yeah. And everyone's wired differently, right? So, yes. you know, some people want to get promoted and make a lot of money. Some people want to want to be happy and, and save the world and make sure that they're really, they've got a sense of belonging and they're, they're being connected. Some people mm. want to be in an environment where, you know, um, they're trusted and valued. Some people want to, you know, want to, um, want a relationship with honesty mm. every day that they go to work. You know, there's a there's a million different things that are important to different people. And, and, you know, if you're out there trying to do something that's important to your parents or your employer or your friend, but it's not your thing, then don't expect an easy road for behaviour change and implementing habits to try and get it because it's just going to be impossible. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, for me, why... I, I found it pretty, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was hard training for a lot of the climbing I did, but I loved it so much and I wanted it so badly. So you just, just, it just happens. You find a way to do it. You you must have loved boxing to the point where, you know, going to training was, was good for a long time. You enjoyed it, the challenge of it, the competitive nature of it. I don't know. You had your, you had your reasons why you liked it and that's why you're able to, able to keep doing it and work hard and, and achieving it. That's, that's hard. And I think people that haven't really considered um, and really focused and drilled into what's important to them, it, it can be quite, quite hard to, to implement, you know, you ever, a lot of these healthy habits. Ever, yeah. Did you ever learn anything on the rock face about yourself that you then was like, ah, that's a thing in my life? Well, look, I think when, 
I think what I learned about myself, and look, I had some, some certainly some hardship in the lead up to, to Everest and stuff like that, um, that initially I really struggled with and, and I went through a really testing time. Um, but I guess what I learned um, about myself, some of my own strengths was, was perseverance. Um, you know, I learned that I was actually very good at altitude. I learned that I was good at suffering at altitude. I was good at the mental game of being stuck in mm. a tent for a long time. Mm. Um, I really found ways to connect with, with, with my team and the people that I'd be with that, that is, is really powerful when you're in challenging, consequential settings. Um, you know, I learned a lot, like I said earlier, from, the, from a lot of the Sherpa people that I worked with, um, mm. you know, and, you know, my, my, one of my best mates, Ticket to Mang, is, a, is, a, is now my business partner. We track Climb Scooter Paul and we've done a lot of stuff together and we've had an amazing friendship and journey over, over 20 years now. So, um, you know, yeah, I've learned a lot, but I'm still learning, I'm still mm. learning stuff. I'm learning how to scuba dive at the moment and, you know, that I'm, I need more weight than I probably would have to get down to the bottom. <laughs> than I would have maybe <laughs> twenty years ago. Yeah, but but yeah, I mean, I'm 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 learning all the time. But I think mm. from you know, yeah, I mean, from in the, the context of what was important to me, yeah, I, I learned I learned a lot of stuff about myself yeah. that I was able to apply. And that's what we need to do, isn't it? We have to learn, and this is something we talk about: is understanding your strengths because everyone's got an X factor. And what do people do? They want to compare themselves to others. Yeah. All the time, yeah. especially young people, they feel this need to compare and it's pointless because we're all wired differently, we're all created differently and we all have character strengths and we need to, and there's ways that we can learn um, and, and delve into those and become aware of those and then we need to turn those into our default position. When we're under the pump or under stress, when things aren't going well, you know, automatically default to what you're good at. I mean, you should be using these things all the time, but particularly when things aren't going well. So what am I good at? I'm good at perseverance. I'm good at suffering. If I'm stuck in this tent for another week, hey, it's okay. Good at this. Done it mm. before. Get through it. Very basic example. But, yeah. you know, understanding our strengths as people is a very important part of this journey um, to, to becoming a resilient person um, because that's what you have to rely on. Yeah. I'd love to get your idea or philosophy or thoughts around the balance between or the focus on resilience versus potential dissociation. So I think given different people and different experiences, there can be a bit of a dance between those two things and it can tip over into being... Uh, I mean, if it's if we're unaware of it, it can tip over into being maybe an unhealthy or an avoidance thing. But also, there's part of it that I think is very necessary. Do you do you so have you ideas s- about that? Have you thought about that? So, when are you saying disassociation? You're talking disengagement. So, what? yeah. So, I guess when some when adverse things happen, when something when something yeah when adversity strikes, yep. and someone is just totally okay with that. Yep. Sometimes, and you know, like that. This has been me before, and I, I think that this. I learned a bit about me in the boxing ring, where, where all those years ago, at first, you know, I was, 
I wasn't emotional in the boxing ring and I was very, a lot of the time I had these coping mechanisms that I was unaware that I'd, um, that I developed over the years. Yep. But there was this, like I was dissociated. So people were going, oh, you're scared of a punch in the face. Aren't oh, you scared? Doesn't it hurt? Doesn't it this? Doesn't that? I was like, I don't feel any of that. So there was this actually, there is dis, there is emotional dissociation when I'm in fight or flight in this environment and I started looking Ooh. into that. Now, I, I saw someone um, post out a quote recently on it kind of going, you know, not not emotionally responding to adversity is just dissociation. And I was like, yeah, like, but that's not not necessarily a bad thing. It's a, like, it's, it's a result of something that's happened in someone's life. And if they, you know, like, I looked at it when, when COVID hit and I had two gyms and they both Ooh. shut down and I wasn't allowed yeah. to work. And I thought, holy hell, probably going to lose my house and end up broke single and alone in Melbourne. <laughs> and I went, but, but this, I had this reaction of something great's going to come of this. And I went into let's go mode. But as I, and I created this podcast and I pivoted my life and amazing. It's been the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me, but the whole, I reckon for a six month period, I just watched myself and I was going, is like, have you progressed or is this a coping mechanism and one day you're going to wake up and crash? Yeah, right. Okay. So <laughs> I get, I, I get it. Your psychology hat on, Nick. Yeah, I've got it deep. on. I've got it on. All right. So what, what I think um, I would say to that firstly is I think from a resilience perspective, you you when you truly do build your capacity to the point where you are a pretty resilient person, you are, you're, you're expecting um, failure and stuff to go wrong. You know this is going to happen. It doesn't take you by surprise. I mean, COVID took us by, took us by surprise, took everyone by surprise, obviously. Yeah. But, but I think when you have that capacity, you, you just have this adaptable dynamic way of being able to apply it. And it's, it's, a, it's a mindset. I think yes. for me, and look, look, Butters and I had it with resilience builders. We just started running our programs. We had we'd taken people to Nepal. We had another one, big one booked out. We had Tassie trips to Cradle all lined up. Yeah. And then overnight that ended. Not Notwithstanding, Tiff, I, I do run a, a ski program, Colorado. That's still in hibernation, yeah. slowly coming out. And our business in Nepal is still in hibernation. Yeah. Interesting side note is those guys turn themselves into chicken farmers, all of our mountaineering guides. Wow. And, and they say it's a lot harder than climbing Everest, farming chickens, but that was their pivot move. Now, yeah. now I had no doubt that they were going to come up with something because they're Nepalese, right, and they overcome everything. They just find a way. Um, but I think, you know, having that ability to, you know, and you said maybe not expressing emotion or, you know, that well, that's a form of composure under pressure in itself, you mm. know, mm. you know, not getting flustered, not getting upset. I mean, I was really internally, yeah, when COVID hit, I was this, I was like that, probably a yeah. bit like you. Yeah. 90% of my income vanished overnight. What am I going to do? And Butters and I twiddled our thumbs for a little while with resilience builders because we're just getting traction. It was just starting. Yeah. What are we going to do? Well, what we'll do is we'll build out all of our content into an online program and let's see if we can make that fly. And so fortunately, we've been really successful with that. And now we've got a string to our bow that we didn't have before. Yes. So it has been um, 
it has there there is an intensely positive spin-off for us from a from a business sense of COVID. Um, mm. You know, probably I'm really mindful that I can you can say something like that, and it's it's easier said than done. Oh, well done! You had this, you spun it off, and you made it work. Well, I didn't have the capacity to do that with my other businesses, but I did. We did have the capacity to do that with this. Um, mm. But you, you know, there's another good point I want to make is also that we all watch everyone's highlight reel and what become really like oh, the learnings that I made over the last year are just I'm a just a mm. completely different yeah. human being. But what made me uh, kind of internally laugh at sometimes is I lo- I looked at what my life might look like from the outside the couple of years before COVID, the things that had come to fruition for me that I was that I was getting involved in and yeah. then what I'd made of the experience of COVID and this thing that, that become really successful and then the opportunities that I said yes to because of that and then the opportunities that I created and I went from the outside and I loved it and I was just in this place of gratitude and blessed and I was you know, happiest I'd ever been, but I I would think to myself, everyone from the outside looking in would think that 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 is my life. What they don't see is like potential complete loss. Like Like I still had businesses that were bleeding money that might, you know, I still was, could lose my house at any moment. Like all, I still had no control over 50% of my life, but I was over, like, I can't control that. Can I control it? No. Am I going to focus on it? Then no, because what's focusing on it going to do create shitty neurochemistry. So I, so, and I think that like, as you were saying there, we shouldn't compare to other people, but what you know, when we do see people doing great, we should assume that they've got as much hardship going on as we do at the oh, time. Oh yeah, yeah. Everyone's got their own trauma. Everyone's got their own story, and, and you know, mine's no worse than anyone else's. Yours is mm. no worse than anyone else's. Mm. We've all had shit in our life. We've all had difficulty in our life, and yep. and you know, for, I would love to know the exact percentage of everyone that you look at and they're smooth sailing and they're doing really well the work and the hardship that's gone on yeah. behind the scenes to get there. Because as we know, stuff like that, stuff like that um, doesn't just happen. But what you, what you said there, which is a whole other resilience builder session, right, is process versus outcome. Yeah. You know, you had steps in place, and we talk about this all the time. You know, the one thing you cannot control ever, as you know, you know this, you're a professional, is outcome. Yeah. Cannot, you can't control the outcome. Doesn't matter how hard you prepare, how much work you put in, how disciplined you are. If you want to get in the ring, if you want to climb Everest, whatever it is, there is always going to be stuff that you cannot control. What can you control? You can control your process. Mm-hmm. You can certainly, you can certainly align the balance of probabilities into your favour mm. by working hard, by having your non-negotiables, by yes. doing all the things that you can control, sticking to that, sticking to your process. Um, and, you know, when, when COVID hit, I'm sure there are a lot of people that either consciously or subconsciously drilled into their process, you know, because um, if we focus on the outcome, we're done, aren't we? You mm. know, you know yep. I mean, we, we noticed this. We run a lot of trekking trips and introductory mountaineering experiences and, and people turn up in Nepal and they're thinking about summit day. They're thinking about 
what's it going to be like? What's the weather going to be like? Are there going to be people? How am I going to feel? And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We've got 23 days before we get to seventh day. Your focus today is to get from here to here. Yes. Safely, in good shape, well hydrated, you know, eating good food, being well rested tomorrow, and then we start again. Mm. And each day there'll be little things, but this is where your focus sits for today. Tomorrow, I'll tell you what, two days before summer day, we'll really start thinking about that. We don't need to think about that at the moment. We're so far away from that. And, you know, and then if you talk about um, that process versus outcome, the process for something like that actually starts way before you ever get on a plane. Way before you even get on a plane, it's like your training, your preparation, your learning, your equipment, the stuff you're getting together, what are you reading, what research you're doing. But the process goes for a long time, doesn't it? Yeah. Then your outcome quickly comes, usually, at the end. And this is what happens too. I mean, not that I'm an expert on any of this, but you do see, you notice athletes that have worked their whole life and whether they're Olympians or AFL players or, or boxers, they work and train their whole life for, this, for these outcomes and then that finishes. Mm. That journey mm. ends. Mm-hmm. What, what do I do now? Yeah, who am I? Who am I without that? Yeah. It's, and I don't, I don't have an answer. I, don't, I mean, look, I tell everyone, if, if I'm asked, you didn't ask me, I'm going to tell you anyway. Excellent. What's the most courageous thing I ever did? It was leaving the police force. That was the toughest, hardest decision for me that I've ever made. Yeah. Because here I was, institutionalised, mostly getting the wage every every week, getting yeah. the holidays, getting the sick leave, yeah. comfortable, but I wasn't in a good state. Yeah. I was no longer in a good state. wasn't healthy for me. I really was... Um, you know, I was, you know, there was stuff going on at the time. You know, I was suffering from depression, PTSD, all that stuff. Mm. And, and I sort of just got to that point where I had to just jump. I had to leave because it was just impacting my health so, mm. so significantly. Um, but it's hard to do. It's hard but, to do. Yeah, but isn't that in itself testament to the power of habit? So if we can develop a habit... That habit is strong because your habit of getting up and going to a familiar life, even though that life had turned into a negative thing, that habit was easy to maintain. Oh yeah, the habit. But once of we understand that, then it's you have comfort. the ability. Yeah, you had the ability to take your ten seconds of courage, get the hell out, and then form mm. those. You knew the basis of well, let's create this new habit again somewhere else, doing something else. Yeah, I didn't know it back then though. I know it now, but I didn't know it back then. I was shit scared and it was a really, you know, that was, that was tough. You know, and I lost, I lost a lot of, I I didn't necessarily lose friends, but I lost a lot of associates, associations and Mm. a lot of camaraderie and a lot of connection with a lot of people. Yeah. 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 That's really difficult. I feel. It wasn't just the pay packet. Yes. This whole. 20 years of life and routine, it stopped. And, 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 I, and I'll tell you, you know, I was in, only a few people know the state I was in when I left, but I left TIFF, the police force. There was no fanfare. There was no send-off. I got to the point where I physically couldn't walk in the door anymore. 
and all my work was left undone. I never signed off. Wow. My diary was, was, my pay sheet was never signed off. Nothing was else was done. Like when I left, I had to come in, sneak in on a weekend and get my staff oh, because man. it got to the point where I just could not bring myself to walk in that door anymore. Like, and that, and that's something that now, like my capacity for detail and OCD-ness with <laughs> preparation and planning, getting, and I, and I was like that anyway, but that's how it got to the point where I just, I couldn't even bring myself to finish. So everything was left under, you know, and a lot of, a lot of good mates finished off my jobs and, you know, joked about it. Yeah, it's all right. I'll take that one. I'll do that one. Um, because yeah. that's, that's what happened, you know, and I, and I recognized it really just, just in the nick of time, really. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think with the biggest, what can you attribute to being probably the most helpful thing at that stage, whether it be the thing that helped you recognise you needed to change or the thing that made it possible to change or the thing that, that picked you up from that place? Oh, look, without doubt, when I was in that really tough moment, um, and a lot of that was accentuated by some experiences I'd had in Nepal. I'd been climbing and, and a friend died. We were on an expedition together. And, and so there was a ticker who I mentioned before, he was part of that experience. And, you know, the short answer to that is some really strong social connections that understood. Yeah, yeah um, right. And there are a couple of people in the organisation that were that were very generous and that understood and that gave me space. Um, there are a lot that didn't understand. Um, but, you know, that really, because at the moment that was, I was in my learning journey. I was, I was still learning, learning knowledge about myself, about, you know, I, I don't think I was a particularly resilient person um, back then, not like I would see the definition now. Um, yeah. You know, I was just going through it, processing it as I could, um, getting help where I could, seeing doctors where I could, getting medicated where I could. Um, you know, that was all drinking way too much. Um, you know, there was a whole period after immediately after I left the job that wasn't particularly healthy but then slowly you know slowly made sense of it all and started to put the pieces together and um was lucky that I was able to to begin to recognize that it's very lucky and from from the from an as an outside observer as you spoke of that and you talk about social strong social connections being the thing that helped you and what concerns me is from the many conversations with first responders I hear about is because of the lifestyle and the kind of paradigm you live in, mm. a lot of people who aren't in the even family, even wives and close family relatives don't really connect with what you do and how you how, what life as a first responder and a law enforcement officer is. So you're kind of isolated. So for you to have those strong connections, so I think of people that maybe don't have, you know, the climbing outlet that you had where you had those connections outside of there. So then this environment becomes toxic and you have PTSD and mental health issues inside it, but also they're the only, it's the only place where you can identify any social connections, but even those, you know, could be a bit taboo because of the environment itself? You know, the particular, 
social connections to give some context to that is they were people that I was able to be vulnerable with. Yeah. And and in an organisation like Victoria Police, being vulnerable is not a natural state mm. of being for, mm-hmm. for a huge percentage. And certainly back then. And certainly, you know, there were there were people that I that I that I trusted, that I knew well, that I could never bring myself to open up to the struggles I had for those people. So on the surface, I totally understood the way they would see me as, mm. you know, um, as just being someone who was disinterested in the police force anymore, couldn't be bothered, lazy, um, you know, and there, and that was absolutely no doubt. I know for a fact that was the perception of a lot mm. of people that, you know, you know, I'd been a, a, a pretty hard worker. Yeah. 99% of my career, but I dropped off at the end because I just couldn't cope. Um, and that's the thing. And when you can't come out and, and you don't have that environment where you can really bring that to the fore, mm. because this is, you know, I'm sure you've, you've discussed vulnerability a lot through mm-hmm. your podcast. And <laughs> I, you know, what are the reasons, what, why the, what, are, what are some of the reasons, we, why are the reasons people can't be vulnerable? You know, I just, bloody hell, I'd just climb Mount Everest. But I couldn't cope with police work. How to work that out? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yes. like it doesn't make sense. How do you? How can you go and do that and then not come back here and be? Yeah. I remember so, when I did. You know, when people asked me about that boxing ring, why are you scared? And I was like, why aren't I scared? And I started asking the question. And I, I feel the moment when I think of it now, of this moment where I where I thought, well, if I'm not scared of that, what am I scared of? And that like this feeling through my body as I went, connection, Ooh. vulnerability, someone getting close, you know, like exposure. I was like, oh, let's not go there. You know, like vulnerability is terrifying. Ooh. It's terrifying. Ooh. And in a, in, a, in a job where uh, bravery and courage and certainty and authority is a necessity there's a there's a portion of you that needs to suppress any other emotion and deal and cope and so how i mean that is a i don't know the answer moving forward for for that across the board for the police force for the paramedics for firefighters i don't know how to manage um being vulnerable but but also being strong and it's i mean we'll have to find a way yeah, well, look, it's um, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing, is it? No. You know, in an organisation like, um, you know, the police force, you've, you know, the the myth that vulnerability equals weakness is is probably pretty alive and well still in a lot of places. Like I, I do, like to always, my disclaimer is I haven't, I've been out for a long time, so and I'm, yeah. I'm aware that things are changing rapidly, but. And it's kind of. It's disappointing, but it's also kind of human, right? Because we we like an organisation is made up of humans that have been around mm. humans and exposed to the same thing, and so, I mean, what terrified me before I was ready to admit who I am and what's the reality of what was underneath them, the, all this whole mask is, I I would say I used to be a person as especially as a younger person that if someone overshare if someone overshared really quickly if someone told me too much deep stuff too quickly Ooh. i was like Whoa. yeah yeah well that's away, right right because yeah. in, 
in doesn't my work head, that way either. Yeah, yeah. in my it's head, like, well, I, I thought I was nothing, but eternally, mm. I just knew that I was I, I was terrified of that. I was terrified yeah. because for me, I couldn't do it. But I just didn't know it yet. So I look at that in the police force, same thing is going. You've got these people that are probably internally triggered because it's going to shine a light on something that they're just not ready to pull out of Pandora's box. Yeah, but you know what? Vulnerability isn't about just pumping it all out there straight away either. Mm. You know, it's, it's not, you know, you've got to know your moment and know your time and be in the right environment. Mm. Yeah, I reckon there's a big part of the answer is, and you're doing it with people, you're taking people out. Like You can't see what you're in the middle of. You need to step outside of life. You need to get away from the environment in order to have a look from away from it and go, how is this life? Yep. And you know what? You know how you, people will go on these team building exercises and you, you go away and, we, you know, we do this sort of stuff as well, but... Um, you know, there is nothing that builds trust more between people, organisations, teams, than the power of those people being able to be vulnerable with each other at, yeah. at the right point of time. And that's why so many team building exercises, if you like, take people into, into areas where people are out of their comfort zone. Yep. Where everybody's like, because all that autonomous behaviour gets broken down, doesn't it? It's like, oh. Yeah. I don't know what I'm going to do here. How am I going to deal with this? And slowly, people have to rely on each other. They have to, you know, the facade of having all the answers comes down. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know how to deal with this. I'm, I need your help here. We've got to work together to get through this. And that's why those experiences are so fantastic. Mm. Galvanising groups, you know, bringing people together. Because everyone, everyone's like, well, well we've, got to do something different here to get through this yeah do you know the couple of things after this first improv workshop i did uh and you know i've just started a tv show on channel 31 so part of it was i want to have to watch (laughs) (laughs) i was like part of me was just i want to get way more comfortable in front of a camera than i am real quick Mm. so a way to do that is go to somewhere that i find even more terrifying which is doing this improv stuff but Some of the things, the little things that were said last Tuesday night that really grabbed me and I went, oh, this is so much deeper. It's not even about the screen anymore. This is about, this is going to change me as a human is these moments where the the trainer was saying, when we do this, the activities are ridiculous. It's like things that kids do. I was, like part of my brain's going, are we really do it? This is so dumb. <laughs> like yeah, this is totally so really meaningless, that. but that's the point. It's fail quickly. But he said things like, when we do this activity, it's really important that you look, maintain eye contact with the person and that you feel safe and connected. And so like, there's this safety, trust, security and connection. And and I was like, oh, there's a little part of me that's like, well, I don't know if I want to be looking in that person's eyes. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's exactly what we need to do. Like they are the moments yeah. where you go, here's some here's somewhere where I can practice this and I can start to desensitize what it means for me to actually be vulnerable, look someone in the, in the eyes and let them see me and not have control of the situation because improv is just making shit up, like just making stuff up and then forgetting about it because it doesn't matter. Like that's beautiful. Yeah, Crazy. yeah but it's hard, it's, hard to, it's hard to bring that too if you're having to do that with someone you don't know very well. Yeah, you yeah. Know, just there and you just... 
yeah, way more. Much harder. Yeah, and with people watching. So you'd yeah. feel totally exposed. Exactly. Yeah. Far and, out. Is, and, and maybe it's not, is it an authentic, genuine? I think for me it's the, it's it's kind of the um, immersing into the, something and the understanding behind it for me. Like, mm. yeah, such a process. And, you know, the stopping the mental chatter and stopping this overthinking and second guessing. It's like someone's going to walk in, they're going to say something, you have no idea what it is and you're going to need to respond with something make-believe and you're just going to completely make it up on the fly. Everyone's watching, no one's judging. If you can't think of anything or if what you say is ridiculous, that doesn't matter, you're encouraged to say it anyway and embrace it. And if you fail, we celebrate the fail, right? So celebrating failure and letting go and not caring, like these are all things that we do not practice in 2021. <laughs> no, but I think I think we're starting to practice some more. I yeah. mean, because this is the, the messaging has to be that, you know, and it always is for us is that failure, if you really drill into it, look, number one, it's just a learning opportunity. It has to yep. be just a learning opportunity. Yeah. People don't see it as just a learning opportunity. But if you, if you do accept that failure is a learning opportunity, then, you know, the more spectacularly we fail, I mean, these start to become experiences that money can't buy. Yes. Really. Yes. Because this is where we get our shift and our growth and our change from. Yep. Um, and, you know, nobody wants to wants to fail, but if you, the next step is to really be willing and prepared to look at and analyse, well, why did that happen? Yeah. You know, learn. There's there's something we can learn. Winning is a shit teacher. Really, <laughs> so true. What do, you, what do you learn when you get the right result? Yeah, we get we, we might have we get blind spots. We can be very self deceptive when we yeah. win and, and too quickly get the result perhaps that we're after. Yeah. Um. You know, all the stuff that I've learned that really means anything in the mountains has come from getting it wrong. Yeah. And and you have to have that people. You know, everyone wants this instant gratification, this result. You have to have this period. Yep. We have to understand that there's a period we go through where we fail and get it wrong because that's our experience base. Yes. And quite often you can't be successful if you haven't had that those moments, you yeah. know, those moments of toil and struggle and adversity and failure. It's it's you know, we're we're lucky. We're lucky. When we, we, we're fortunate to have those experiences where they, you know, we don't suffer serious injuries or, or yes. physical repercussions from them, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. obviously people can, can fail in those ways and I'm not saying that's good. But, you know, when we can get through those tough moments and look back and go, wow, this is what I learned. Um, this is what I learned. This is the positive. Process it. Apply yeah. it. Don't do it again. Yeah. And we're, then we're growing, aren't we? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love it. I mean, I mean, we want we, we, we take kids to base camp. We put them in charge. We put them in charge so they make decisions that they'll get wrong. Yes. Because then they go, well, okay, well, did that work? No. Okay, so what are we going to do next time? And they'll only make the mistake once. So many lessons in that. It's so brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So brilliant. Yeah. Oh, Mr. Far. Clearly I could talk to you for hours. We should huh. wrap it up. Tell us how people are listening to you. They're going far out. I want Nick to make me more resilient. Give me some experiences. <laughs> Where do we find you? Oh, look, resiliencebuilders.com.au. That's our website. Lots of stuff on there. Um, slowly bringing programs back. But we do a lot of 
online work, one-on-one coaching, uh, things like that. As I said, webinars, face-to-face workshops, um, just jump on, on resiliencebuilders.com.au, have a look and um, give us a ring, send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. You are Thanks. fabulous. Thank you for the opportunity. Having oh, this thank chat you. Here. Thank you for, for sharing it with our little code niners. Until next time, we haven't even talked about Tassie. Oh, I know, mate. Yeah, we're going to have to have another conversation about Tassie for sure. That's where all the yeah, cool you... people come from. Oh, well, Olveston, northwest coast. It's beautiful. Yes, yes. Yeah, no one knows about it. There's no people. Oh, no, that's because I left. <laughs> <laughs> I was there and yeah. I left. And you're never going back, I bet. No, too quiet, too quiet. I love it, I love it, but two days in, I am ready for home. I'm all, I get to Tassie at like at Christmas normally yeah. and, I, and I walk around and go, oh, this is right. so pristine, so beautiful. The down, down to Pedro's. Down to Pedro's. I used to work at Pedro's. Did you really? Yeah, I, love Pedro's. I used to work at Pedro's. I was yeah, a right. waitress back in the day. and go. But then three days in, I'm mm. like, where is everyone? You know, that there's not I live in Elwood, so there's not the cafe culture, there's not the vibe, there's yeah. not the people around, but yeah, it is a beautiful yeah. place. No, it is, it's awesome. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Nick. We'll uh we'll be in touch, no doubt.